This autumn marks 10 years since I first returned to Korea, when my whole life was basically turned upside down. I went on the goal first trip home, reunited with my birth family, emerged from the adoptee fog, realized that, surprise, you're Asian. Returned to Australia, feeling lost and grasping about wildly for guidance. Once I heard an analogy from a late discovery adoptee, who described the experience of finding out that they were adopted later in life, being as if they were a china teapot which had shattered into a million pieces and now the pieces don't fit back together. That analogy resonates with me too. <laughs> so here we are 10 years later. It's a significant date, a date that perhaps warrants some kind of celebration or at the very least, reflection. A timely opportunity for another update of my life in Seoul. You're listening to Adopted Feels, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. In this episode, the two of us sit down for a long overdue transcontinental catch up. But first, Hannah shares another extended Seoul life update in which she realizes, and I quote, oh shit, I live here now. Hannah also delves into the process of cultural adaptation and the anxiety of not knowing what's next, followed by a little heart-to-heart -heart with myself about life plans versus, well, less linear trajectories and the value of following your curiosity. So a little background. On the podcast, I've talked about getting to this point, deciding to move here, moving here, my job search here, and all of those things were hard. It took so much effort to get here, to say goodbye to people in Australia, and then doing all these things for the first time in your birth country, which were fucking hard and stressful, to be honest. So this was kind of the theme of our earlier episodes about me moving here. It took this tremendous amount of energy, and at risk of sounding like a hypochondriac, I think it took a toll on my body too. I developed persistent body rashes for a while, for no apparent reason, and I also went from being just a light sleeper to having an occasional insomniac problem for the first time in my life. Super annoying. And I also drank four to five times a week for a period. That was my choice, but as you know, um, it probably took a toll. But it was also really exciting. Uh, it's exciting to do firsts. Each one feels like a little achievement. Look at this thing I did, and that spurs you on. And since then, I've had more little firsts. I renewed the lease on my apartment. I bought my first computer with Hangul characters on the keyboard. I figured out how to use Cacao Pay. I re-microbladed my eyebrows. I finally bought an oven, secondhand from an app, and wondered why I'd waited so long. Now it's been almost a year and a half since I moved to Korea. The honeymoon period is well and truly over. And now I just live here. I have a full-time nine hour a day job, a 45 minute subway commute, and exactly four days of annual leave left for the year. Just enough to fill that gap between Christmas and New Year compared to the standard four weeks of leave in Australia, which now seems unfathomably long. Sometimes, it feels like I've just swapped out my office job in Australia for one in Korea, with longer hours, less pay, less professional development, and less opportunity for promotion. It's basically a win-win situation. Same routine, same problems, different location. Sometimes it feels like the novelty has worn off and I'm over it. Living here indefinitely is very different from visiting. There's no end date in sight. Next year, I also have an opportunity to potentially sign a permanent job contract. And if you have one of those in Korea, it's near impossible to fire you if you want to stay. So then there would literally be no end in sight. So the honeymoon period is over and a few other things happened. COVID continued to spike, even in civilly obedient Korea, and I had to work from home for a few weeks which I found much harder than anticipated. An unusually long monsoon season all but wiped out summer. Community events here, as everywhere, have been canceled for the year. I got lonely 
and I realize that I can't outrun my loneliness. It always follows to some extent. I had some conflicts and breakdowns in my personal relationships. I accepted that I won't be visiting Australia or anywhere else anytime soon, and now I slightly brace myself to face the upcoming holidays in Korea on my own. So you take all of these things together, and then I found myself rolling down this dark little hill, and I was a bit less motivated, and I was a bit more quiet and somber with friends, and sometimes I'd get teary in public places for no obvious reason. Fun. And then suddenly I asked myself, or more like I internally yelled out to myself, what the fuck am I doing here? It's a valid question, and one that I think a lot of adoptees who live in Korea have asked themselves at some point. And at the same time, there's no turning back right now. There's no going anywhere, really, until COVID eases. And I've bought too much damn furniture to get rid of it all already, too. To suddenly move back to Australia, though possible, would not be practical. It would be a transition that would take around six months of planning, methinks. My life is here now. The thing is, I didn't really prepare for this moment. It just took so much energy and momentum to get to this point that I didn't really think beyond it. And now that I'm here, it's clear that I don't have a plan. It's a bit embarrassing, to be honest. I don't really know what's next. I don't know how long I'll stay here. I'm an adult. I should have a friggin' plan, right? But I haven't figured it out yet. And yes, that's anxiety-inducing. So that's what I'm grappling with right now. And that's why I'm finally recording this after sitting down at my computer for weeks trying to make sense of my feelings with Ryan being very patient all the while, as usual. In times like these, as your quintessential neighborhood Virgo, I turn to theories to bring order and comfort to my chaotic little soul. Systems, theories, and strategies are my jam. So I have two theories today. The first comes from our go-to guru, Brene Brown. Recently on her podcast, Unlocking Us, she talked about a concept called day two. Day two of a three-day training program is always the hardest because you don't have the excitement of the beginning or the sense of achievement of the end. Similarly, the second act of a three-act play, or the middle part of Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, otherwise known as the monomyth, is always the hardest for the protagonist. In Act 1, the hero is called to adventure, filled with a sense of excitement and possibility. But in Act 2, they often hit a wall. They're struck by uncertainty and doubt, and ultimately have to learn vulnerability in order to move forward. As Brene Brown says, this middle bit feels like stumbling around in the dark. And her answer for it, as I also concluded back in episode 21, is to stay the course. She says, quote, The middle is messy, but it's also where all the magic happens, all the tension that creates goodness and learning. Unquote. Staying the course can be really hard though, right? Whether it's a relationship, a commitment to health and fitness, or trying to learn a language, my instinct, probably a slight adoptee thing, just a little, is to cut and run. This didn't work out, maybe I kind of messed up, I failed, so fine, forget it, start over. The second theory that's been helpful lately is culture shock theory which is used to explain the process of adjustment when people move to a different country. So actually, one of my work colleagues, who's also a friend, told me about this when I was telling her that I was questioning why I was living in Korea. Conveniently, she majored in intercultural studies, and she's also had the experience of living overseas alone as an adult in Turkey. Interestingly, culture shock theory traditionally employs a model which follows a similar U-shaped curve to the three-act play or hero's journey storytelling trajectory. In the basic culture shock curve model, there are four general stages, honeymoon, frustration, adjustment, and acceptance. In the honeymoon stage, at the top of the curve, the overseas move seems like the best decision ever. The transition feels easier and faster than expected, and the culture seems fun and exciting. Next, in the frustration stage, 
The fatigue of not knowing the language and culture sets in. Small things start to get to you and bouts of depression and homesickness are common. Naturally, you start to compare things to where you came from and those discrepancies can make you feel angry, frustrated and even hostile to people around you. You can also start to idealize your life back home, develop some prejudices towards the new culture and reject it as inferior. This stage, if I haven't made that super obvious already, is clearly where I am. I also had a recent incident with a complete asshole of a Korean man on the street at night, which left me feeling extremely vulnerable in this society without speaking the language and without having a network of local Korean friends. It also brought up some major anger about the sexism and misogyny which is deeply ingrained in Korean society. I'm really trying my best right now not to generalize this shitty experience and trying not to hate Korean culture and Korean men. My friend also explains the curve model in this way. Moving to another country strips you of all the support systems that you're used to. Your friends and family, the government systems you're familiar with, the language, comfort foods, everything that makes you feel at home. And there's this natural period of frustration and resistance because you want to rely on your old systems, but they don't apply in the new cultural context. And when you realize that they don't apply, that's when you hit the bottom of the curve. But then when you start accepting the differences and adjusting your expectations, that's when you start going back up. At this point, I wonder if and when I will ever feel at home in Korea but I recognize that part of my adjustment requires coming to the conclusion that one culture is not better than the other, but just different. Constantly comparing everything or holding Korea up to an Australian or Western standard will never allow me to be happy here. Apparently, this whole process of cultural adaptation, ending with some sense of peace and acceptance, takes about two years. I also have a feeling that, COVID or no COVID, I should stay here for now. Partly because all good things take time to build, and also because I had a lot of mobility during my school years, a series of domestic and international moves beginning in upper primary school, through puberty, an awkward and embarrassing experience, and coming to an end in year nine in Melbourne. There were lots of hellos and goodbyes, lots of wondering where I was going to sit at lunchtime, and how I'm going to explain myself. You know, the whole, uh, I'm actually Australian despite this Asian face. Yeah, I was adopted from Korea. Don't really know anything about Korea though. Yep, that's my sister. She's white too. That whole thing. I digress. Our episode 17 guest, Hilbrandt Vestra, told me that I should stay put for a while. I know, I know, I replied. So I have this sense that I'm not quite done even if it's just so that some of my family and friends get a chance to visit me here. I still want that experience too. And though the honeymoon phase is over, there are still moments of magic in the mundane, like bright autumn days at Sokchun Lake, sunlight glittering on the water and lighting up the jewel tones of the Tanpungi, or the Ajashi at the nearest shoe repair stall near my office, who places his homemade toshirak on the floor for a moment to punch a couple of extra holes in the straps of my sandals for free. Or when I get off the train, finally back in my neighborhood after a long day, and hear wailing from the local 24-hour kono, short for coin norebang, which has opened up again following the ease of COVID restrictions. It's so easy to stop in for a song or two on my way home, it'd be a shame not to. Or when I run down to one of the local kimbap stores, for a quick $3 lunch before recording a podcast. Not one of those newer, fancier places with less rice and more fillings where you order on a screen, but one of the OG joints where the Ajama looks at you funny when you place your order clumsily in Korean and smiles and slaps the back of your hand with her bare palm in spite of COVID as she gives you the kimbap. The skin-on-skin -skin contact and the warmth of her gesture resonating as I walk home. Or the nightcap at the dive bar come Pojang Matcha. Not in Ujiro or Hannam, or one of the newer trendy areas, but in Sangsu, where adoptees have been meeting for decades now. 
A pocha with flimsy plastic furniture and rolls of toilet paper hanging from the ceiling for napkins. Illuminated by occasional flashes from the flame of an enormous wok, dishing up plates of smoky, peppery chicken gizzards. I'm falling asleep, leaning my head against the concrete wall, sipping my soju tonic, as I listen to friends rant about work and my dubious dating choices. And in these moments, I think to myself, this is my life and it's good. So though it's all tenuous and unclear and anxiety inducing, this is what's keeping me here right now. Living in your birth country is no walk in the park. But as with any challenging experience, again, as Brene Brown reminds us, naming it, normalizing it, adjusting your expectations and finding ways to cope helps to navigate the inevitable dips and curves. And so the adventure continues. Thank you so much for that beautiful and <laughs> honest. And I feel like like everything that you shared, I mean, you're always honest, but like, yeah, I kind of really appreciated you sharing, you know, the, the sort of ambivalence that you have and, and that you're going through and the uncertainty of it. And I think it can sometimes be, be more exposing or something to share that kind of stuff. First of all, I'm so sorry to hear about that asshole guy. I actually don't know that story and you don't have to mm. talk about it. It sounds like a really horrible uh, incident. Yeah, it was uh, triggering on um, a number of different levels. And um, it was like, it, it, it just kind of showed me. I mean, I know that um, there are like hyper-masculine um, assholes, not only in Korea. And, um, yeah. And I, you know, so I know that obviously other countries have issues with sexism and like women's rights and, uh, yeah, but it just, um, it, it just showed me this kind of like ugly side of, um, I, I think of Korean masculinity and a, a certain disregard for, um, women and women's bodies and um and also I think like a real anti-foreigner kind of sentiment I mean I'm being like deliberately like vague about like what happened but um yeah it was just like the timing of it as well I was like you know I'm already like really <laughs> like not that excited about Korea right now and I was kind of like do I need to maybe I really need to change my mindset about Korea like maybe I'm somehow I don't know, manifesting shit experiences or something. I don't know if you believe in any, anything like that, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think I also have to get a little bit organized, like make sure that um, in a moment like that, I have a couple of Korean speaking people that I can call at any hour mm. and maybe just have a conversation with them first, like, and, and check that that's okay. And um, I think it's important that I kind of just understand my my legal rights a little bit more here. Anyway, but um, I'm okay, and I have um, I have support from therapist and good friends, and um, I don't know, I do yoga and shit. Like I um, I have ways of um, processing this, which is good. So, mm. oh, I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you have. You have some supports and sorry that you went through that. So, yeah, one of my questions is, did you celebrate your 10-year anniversary? Your, do, you, do you have a special <laughs> name for, for the anniversary? No, no, no special name. Um, I didn't celebrate, but, oh, well, I kind of had, yeah, I kind of had a little dinner with friends, but it also kind of coincided with the documentary filming. Oh, right. So I guess we're going to tell people about that. Anyway, so I was recently filmed, um, as were you, over Zoom, for uh, just a short documentary for Vice News Asia, which is going to feature um, kind of feature the podcast and um, the adoptee community living in Seoul. Filming is tiring. <laughs> <laughs> that was my main takeaway. <laughs> this was like it's really long days, um, you know, because you obviously you try to fit a lot into one day because you, you know you, you're paying for the whole cruise time and stuff. And um, 
And also just because I'm not used to it. So it's like, it's like feeling self-conscious all day, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That does sound tiring. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I'm, I'm a little bit nervous, I guess, because it, once it's released, it might get like widely shared on all the adoptive Facebook groups and stuff like that. Um, Mm. And, you know, vainly my one of my main concerns is just like oh I hope I like look okay (laughs) 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 you know and yeah I hope I look okay of course sounds stupid yeah yeah I mean that's my biggest case too (laughs) (laughs) um did you feel like there was something then kind of symbolic about you you know because you didn't plan the timing but to be doing that documentary on your life in Korea on pretty much a 10-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah. This kind of symbolic timing, um, significant timing. It's just that, like, <laughs> to be honest, um, I feel like it was a bit unfortunate that the filming and uh, this 10-year anniversary or, or what have you um, coincided with definitely uh, a, a lower point in my whole relationship with Korea. Mm. But... But yeah, you know, I mean, this is also, I was thinking like, this is what I signed up for, right? I mean, I signed up for this experience of moving here, which was inevitably and naturally going to be difficult and lonely at times and uh, triggering at times and uh, bring up homesickness and anger at Korea and... uh, you know, really challenging my concepts of like, well, what does home mean to me and what does community and belonging mean to me and all these kinds of things. So I'm kind of getting, like, it's hard um, at the moment and often, (laughs) but um, (laughs) this is kind of what I wanted when I was like, oh, it's not enough for me to just visit, you know? Right. Yeah. Because of COVID, which I know we didn't want to be like, the running theme of this episode, but you're not going to be able to come back to Australia for Christmas and New Year. No, I just don't have enough um, work leave for like the the quarantine on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And it would still be pretty difficult to get a reasonably priced plane ticket, I'm I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably. So my sense of time is completely out the window. And uh, my partner and I were like, what? what the hell did we do last New Year's? And then I remembered that we were all (laughs) in some Brunswick warehouse with, I can't even remember if the music was good, but I do remember that we were like the oldest people there (laughs) and everyone was like 18 or like illegally underage drinking. (laughs) Well, maybe not that young, but yeah, we (laughs) we were probably the oldest people there. Yes. Yeah. That was so. fun though. <laughs> Th- thanks for sharing that on the podcast. <laughs> did we even stay for the countdown or did we go home before? No, we definitely mm. stayed. Uh, yeah. I, th- <laughs> I think we stayed. I remember you made some kind of um, very Australian and very creative uh, pre cocktail with Ribena. Oh, yeah, Ribena and gin. Mm, and maybe some mint? Was it mint or rosemary? Yeah, something. Mm. That's right. No, you're making me sound fancy. <laughs> it was very nice. Yeah. really not fancy. <laughs> oh, Ribena, for people who don't know, it's a, a black currant cordial that kids mm. grow up on in Australia. Yeah. Is it Australian? I don't even know, but it's like, it's like I... Mo- most of the water I drank was, yeah, with Ribena. <laughs> it's laced with Ribena. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I didn't know what it was like to drink plain water as a kid. So that, that probably gives you an indication of the quality of my diet growing up. Anyway. <laughs> I guess for people that don't know, cordial is like sugar syrup. Because I think cordial is also quite an Australian or British Oh, yeah, thing, it is. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah well, it's so it- black currant <laughs> sugar syrup, basically, <laughs> that you mix with water. <laughs> oh, no, they have a name for that. Americans have a name for that. Constant? Is it concentrate? No. Oh. Mm. 
instead then what are your I'm, I'm sure your New Year's mm. this time will, will be yeah. a different experience to last year's yeah well actually you know I <laughs> I swore to myself a few years ago um I, I've had one Christmas here that um because I personally like Christmas and you know it's like probably uh my favorite of, of the annual holidays even though it's so commercialized um and I had one Christmas in Korea. Um, I was just here for a few weeks on holiday. And I swore to myself then I will never have another Christmas in Korea. I hate Christmas in Korea. Like that's how strongly I felt about it. Because it's oh, just, no. it, I mean, it, not all adoptees who live here obviously feel this way or, or visit during Christmas feel this way. But it was such a non-event to me in Korea you know, mm. uh, and it's just this kind of day for like, I don't know, couples to uh, hang out and eat terrible cake and like <laughs> Paris spaghetti okay. or something. Did you know, by the way, short like sidebar, that apparently a lot of those cakes, especially for big holidays, are made like a year in advance or something. In or maybe, not, yeah, or maybe not a year, but like three months in advance. From, yeah, those from those uh, Korean bakery chains. Oh. Yeah, because they can't keep up with the demand for the around the national holidays, right? So it's like they just make uh-huh. heaps of these cakes in advance. Yeah, mm, I know. Anyway, yeah. So Christmas is a non-event <laughs> so that's, in Korea. That's your disdain with the uh, couple just go around and eat gross cake. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> <Three months> old cake. <laughs> and um, so. It was not my plan to be here around Christmas this year, but... So the four days off you have, is that between Christmas and New Year? Yes. And so that means I'll get about, um, you know, a full 10 days off work oh, yeah. with, with both weekends, um, which is going to feel like forever. <laughs> I don't uh. remember the last time I had a whole week off. Well, you know, since March. So... Mm. Mm. Do, you, do you know what... You're I, do. I have no plans at this point. I mean, I might visit my um, Korean aunt and uncle in Jinan. Otherwise, um, you know, hopefully um, I'll organize some things like with friends, like, you know, some kind of Christmas potluck thing involving lots of champagne, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds nice. So you also mentioned that like having your friends and family visit you while you're in Seoul would be mm-hmm. like quite a nice and significant experience mm. for you. Like, I guess to be able to show them your life there. Do you have like particular things in mind that you're like really excited to share or experiences that you want to like do with your visitors? It, I think it depends on the visitors. So actually my parents haven't been back to Korea since they adopted me in the 80s. <laughs> <So> they, oh, <wow. laughs> they wanted yeah. to um, come with me a couple of years ago, but um, then because of my mom's health, we couldn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, my sister was here with me um, for a few days a couple of years ago. But, uh, yeah, it depends. Like, you know, obviously I'm going to do, like, a bunch of touristy things with my parents if they um, mm-hmm. make it here and – but then, you know, with other friends, it's like with one friend, we have to go clubbing because he's a DJ. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I don't know, with other friends, we have to eat a bunch of different things and, um, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, just to, just to kind of be here with, with mm. people for them to just have some understanding of, like, what my life's like here and, um, yeah. Do you think being kind of planless Mm. is an adoptee thing and perhaps even the anxiety of not having a plan? Do you think that's also an adoptee thing? Ooh. I... I don't think being planless is necessary, necessarily an adoptee thing because um, obviously there are adoptees out there, 
kicking all kinds of goals. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure there are adoptees who have. We applaud you all. Yes. <laughs> and we're, we're mildly jealous and slightly resentful. <laughs> um, and, and I'm definitely trying to formulate <laughs> a plan. Uh, yes. And I've been trying to ask myself recently, like, okay, so why did you move here? You know, remind myself of that. And what did you want to get from this experience? What do you mm. still want to get from this experience? So at least on the more like internal and personal relationship side, I want to be clear about what my uh, goals or perhaps a better word is intentions are around that. Um, like I would say that just maybe in general, in our kind of Western capitalist society, we conflate goals with, with just career goals, usually professional goals. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've, that, that has never been that clear for me, um, that I've, I've never had, yeah, it, it hasn't. Um, and the, the job that I have right now is, um, doesn't necessarily make my whole career path more clear yeah so I would never I mean I I can't I can't say um like (laughs) I don't think being planless is an adoptive thing I think yeah maybe having anxiety about not having a plan maybe that is an adoptive thing like it's maybe related to a sense of control in your life because I think that's a big thing for us it can be a big thing to um yeah to struggle with having a sense of control and agency in your own life because um you know obviously through this process of uh transnational adoption um you we you know started out life with without you know with a very unsettling um out of control kind of experience yeah i i just just like i just kind of like went into my whole like educating adoptive parents mode (laughs) and I like slipped out of this like personal conversation mode Um, anyway no no that was good Um, I think my question is also coming from I've come to the realization that I'm not necessarily planless in terms of like because it's a scale right like yeah, I have plans for the next year or whatever. But in terms of like this larger direction or this like, you know, what do you want to get out of life? Or like, what do you want to do? And what's a contribution you want to make? And like all of that, um, which I know no one can really plan for. Like we can work towards something. Like maybe, yeah, like you said, intention is a really good word. But but I just, I've I've just realized like looking back on my life that I've had quite a lot of stops and starts. I've had lots of friendships that I no longer have because I've changed interests or changed directions. And I don't feel like I've necessarily closed doors, but it's like becoming clearer and clearer to me. Like I almost have these different phases in my life. And then it's not like I have continuity in my friendships over all of those phases. Like I might have a few friends that I've known for a long time, but what I've really kind of tended to do is, yep, that chapter's over and now I'm doing this thing. And even the thing that I'm now doing doesn't feel like I really planned it. It just kind of feels like I stumbled into it and I like doing it. And so why not? You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it's just, I guess, a realization I've come to that, no matter what I think of the future in terms of like how planned out I think I can be or want to be, my past is telling me that I meander a lot, like a a lot. And I wonder if that's also maybe an adoptee thing. I don't know. might not be, but it's just something I've been thinking about. I mean, from my perspective, from an outsider's perspective, you've been doing research since since you started university, right? Yeah, I mean, on a different yeah. topic. but Yes. Yeah. So you mean that, yeah, that, like, there's been continuity as a researcher, but your topics have meandered, your research interests have, have meandered? I mean, yeah, so there's that. And there's also, like, you know, I think part of it's a function of I don't see people I grew up with. 
because mm-hmm. I moved when I was younger and I know you, you did too. And I feel like that, you know, moving as a young person also teaches you that all your friendships, they probably won't last because you'll move or they'll move. And there's a kind of transience that's like mm. built into the way that you form connections. And that's also probably part of what's going on. But I guess I've also just, just noticed like, like years and years ago, I was convinced like I wanted to be a musician and mm-hmm. I poured so much time into that and money and felt quite sure about it at the time. And then now, like, I might pick up a guitar for fun, but, like, it's definitely not the same. And it's almost like I haven't stuck with that, the same things and the same group of people really long term. Mm-hmm. And what I've seemed to have done is puzzle myself around or I meander or... Um, I like my life. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think I'm probably like pretty like, I mean, there's so much uncertainty and it's super stressful, especially with my my job and stuff. But like in terms of sense of self, I feel much more comfortable than I used to. But so I'm not like complaining or anything. I guess it's just, yeah, I just feel like I've noticed this kind of pattern now when I look back. So actually I have multiple things that... I want to say in response um, because like, and this is something I've thought about too. I think, okay. So number one, I think that the influence of us moving around a lot as kids and teens, like that definitely has an impact now, I think on our lives and, and, you know, maybe the, the way that we even approach like friendships and relationships. And then number two, um, have you heard of, Elizabeth Gilbert's theory, um, hummingbirds versus jackhammers. Like, no, I no, you know. <laughs> right. So, Elizabeth Gilbert wanted to be a writer from a young age, and yeah, and she was just always very sure about that. And then she just um, devoted her life to writing, and you know, obviously, she's been quite successful. And she was doing a talk one day about like finding your passion and um, or something like that. And then like after the talk, she was contacted by this woman that said like that actually her speech, which was meant to be inspirational, had had made her feel kind of awful because she didn't have like this one main passion in her life and it wasn't for a lack of searching and it wasn't because, you know, she'd been lazy or something. Um Apparently she said to Elizabeth Gilbert, like, oh, you just made me feel like the biggest loser in the world (laughs) because, yeah. uh, yeah. And, you know, so I can, I I mean, I can relate to that ever since I um, very consciously stepped back from, from opera singing. Right. Because I was like, I thought that's what I'm meant to do in my life. And anyway, that's like probably a whole nother big thing that (laughs) don't want to go into now. but, But anyway, so Elizabeth Gilbert came up with this theory. She's like, there are two general types of people, hummingbirds and jackhammers. And jackhammers basically like identify their passion and then just like keep hammering away at it. Like ah, yes, yep. forever, right? And then the hummingbird kind of flits around <laughs> tree to tree, flower to flower, <laughs> trying this and that. And she says... Quote, they create incredibly rich, complex lives for themselves and they also end up cross-pollinating. That is the service you do if you're a hummingbird person. Another quote, you bring an idea from here to over here where you learn something else and you weave it in and then you take it here to the next thing you do. Um, And I think that's definitely how... I mean, the third thing that I think for you contributes is that you're also a Gemini. That's what Geminis like to do. (laughs) You know, they're they're like social butterflies and also like intellectual butterflies and um, like to have multiple interests. And I guess ever since um, I stepped away from classical music and stopped identifying myself primarily as a classical singer which was which was a big deal for me um that yeah that to, that whole to transition to let to let go of that yeah and to oh and to let go of that whole p- pursuit 
right? So mm. ever since then, it was like, well, it's not really clear what my one passion is because I thought it was music. Yeah. Ever since then, I guess I've more been following my curiosity rather than my passion. I think that perhaps that that's okay. I mean, and that's the point I think Elizabeth Gilbert's trying to make. That that's okay. You can you can follow your curiosity instead of your passion and your curiosity might eventually lead you to your passion or mm. yeah, if if the, you're someone that just that has multiple interests um that you are still of service in the world. When you were younger, did people used to say like, you know that phrase, um jack of all trades, master of none? Mm. Kind of I think there's this Judgmental. very ingrained kind of culturally, yeah, that um, you spread yourself really thin and then you kind of lose the purpose or you lose the contribution, like the bigger contribution you could make. But Yes. Um, I mean, hum- yeah, I guess I'm a hummingbird. I guess I'm a, guess I'm a cross-pollinator. <laughs> I mean, that sounds a little bit wrong, but also not too bad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it does sound a bit wrong, but um. yeah, but it's yeah, it's good to. When people remind me of this. Like everyone says, there might be a right or wrong way to do things or to do life or whatever. But like that's all just that's all just whatever is culturally dominant, right? Like there are so many different ways, and I think it's like trying to block out all the internalized judgments about what my life ought to look like. What, career path I should be on like you know am I too old to start this or is it too late have I missed the boat for that like and I think mm-hmm. it's you can really easily kind of get crowded in your head well that sort of thing um instead of seeing it like yeah you're right like as a kind of you're pursuing your curiosity and that's a pretty good way to live like it might be a bit more uncertain than someone that has a set plan and that has 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 also like not just a plan, but has also managed to like execute various stages of it. Um, but there is kind of no point in really, I guess, comparing ourselves to to those bloody people. <laughs> um, I mean, the other thing is that I think unless you're um, like un- unless you're working for a company perhaps or um and you know and you're like trying to climb that corporate ladder or um unless you you know maybe you're a tenure track professor or something in academia or you know you're um you have some real job security there it's it's like otherwise it is kind of like hard to like plan your whole career and have and have certainty right I mean and I think as like any kind of freelance artist, it's like one of the biggest things is like being uncomfortable with uncertainty because that, that's just how it is, right? <laughs> yeah, that is. That's the, that's the landscape. And, and also probably for most artists being uncomfortable with financial uncertainty, which is, yeah, <laughs> even scarier. Um, I, so I think, you know, I think some of these things are just kind of the price you pay maybe to be more like uh, intellectually and creatively stimulated do you think that like anyway brings us happiness (laughs) um i think it depends i think it's also i I mean the the short answer is yes but i think it's also like identifying like what kind of person you are and what kind of circumstances and uh environments make you happy so it's like some of my interests are very solitary in the sense that you know I uh, I was a musician so I had to practice for a long time on my own in like a little soundproofed room right and um you know and now I I like say reading and and writing sometimes and those are really solitary things but in general I don't like working from home like all day by myself and I like going into an office and talking with my colleagues. I like that this podcast, that we do this as a team. I don't think I would be motivated enough to do it by myself. And, um, yeah, so I like, you know, I like things that involve and environments that involve like co- collaboration. Mm. 
But I mean, ultimately, I think like for someone like you, like if if your work wasn't satisfying your intellectual curiosity, like I don't I don't know how you could be happy with that. Yeah, I guess this is maybe the the parallel that I've sort of been subconsciously drawing throughout this conversation is like we're making choices and decisions. They're not always easy to stay in something or to leave something or for you to, you know, mm. go away or when to come back and all that sort of thing. And from a certain kind of perspective, that might look very disjointed or maybe not even rationally make sense to some people, whatever. Um, mm. But that following what draws us and like being curious about things provides a level of some sort of satisfaction or fulfillment maybe on like a kind of existential level that maybe happiness is too strong of a word, but like maybe we, we couldn't do the jackhammer style, put your head down and that's what you do for years and years and years because that is not the kind of thing that would serve us and our personalities, right? Like, I guess I've just been reflecting recently on how I need to accept that more about myself and like, that's just the way that it is. And there's no point being judgmental toward myself. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're basically, you're just a beautiful hummingbird. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, if we're like ready to wrap up, I mean, I think that's a beautiful way that you like kind of pulled this episode together, which we pl- we, we intended for this to be like, a kind of 30-minute mini-sode. <laughs> I did have one, like, ending question for you, though. Oh, okay, okay. Yes. Um, yeah. You talked about uncertainty and the honeymoon period being over, but at the very end, you still describe your life there as an adventure, and I was wondering if you could talk more about why you chose that word and why you ended that piece that way. <laughs> Partly just so that, like, People don't think that this is like a freaking depressing podcast, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Um, but it's still an adventure, like, because I'm still, like, learning stuff about Korea and Korean culture and about myself, still challenging myself to, to uh, yeah, to, to do new things here. Also, just because um, I was just kind of trying to tie it back to like the hero's journey, um, and I think I think I'm still in the the middle of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even if it is kind of more, I'm at the bottom of the curve. It's not quite finished, and I don't know if not quite finished means that oh, I'll, I'll be like here for another like six months, six to twelve months, or like another few years i'm not really sure or forever because you can't get fired (laughs) can i wrap it up with ted lasso i wanted to say on the subject of um curiosity have you heard of ted lasso it's like an apple tv show no i i think it's one of the only from what i understand it's like one of the only good tv shows on apple tv (laughs) but it's just one of my favorite things that I watched this year and it's maybe one of my favorite tv shows ever and I think one of the defining traits about Ted Lasso the character who is just kind of like this eternally optimistic hopeful generous thoughtful character like an everyday hero kind of guy right yeah, but one of the defining traits of him is his curiosity about life and about other people. And so that's why, partly why he takes this crazy job to, um, to go coach Premier League soccer mm-hmm. when he's like, <laughs> the whole premise is that he's an American football coach that doesn't know much about soccer, right? Mm-hmm. And he gets this opportunity to have this whole cross-cultural experience. Um, and, yeah, and, and just the way he, he has this real um, yeah, curiosity about, like, life and, and about genuinely, like, getting to know other people and other people that are maybe otherwise kind of dismissed or underestimated. 
Anyway, I'm I'm rambling now, but the point is that like um I think it's like this beautiful, uplifting, funny show mm. that, that everyone should watch, especially in 2020. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. I have my snacks. So I actually ordered a bunch of stuff online on Woolworths Online and I got it delivered to my parents' place and then they shipped it here because <laughs> I'm very, very lucky. What? So. This is part of my Australian snack haul. I've never seen that before. Well, yes. Is it new? Uh, it's a it's special edition. Um, Twelve <laughs> caramilk bites. Mm-hmm. You know, caramilk is that like that white chocolate Cadbury bar from the UK that recently no, came never. out in Australia. Yeah. Oh my god, you're more on top of Australian sweets, <laughs> and I fucking live here. That's because I've been trolling that pay more attention. those online supermarket websites. <laughs> That's the only reason why. Okay, so you got chocolate. What else did you get? Honestly, it was like 60% chocolate, 30% tampons, and like 10% something else. It was maybe mainly just, yeah, I mean, oh, and barbecue shapes. I got two boxes. Oh. And um, I feel like this is how you know that you're settling into a new place. Um, this is one sign. Previously, I would have been like, oh, I'm going to share my Australian snacks with all my friends. Like, you know, they won't have tried any. But this <laughs> time I was like, no. Like, <laughs> it's just all for me. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I'll get more. Anyway. Right. So that's like a new phase of life in, in Korea. Yeah. Less sharing more hoarding. <laughs>